one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The New Statesman. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Freddie. And I'm Rachel. And this is the New Statesman's Politics Podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing the state of education in Britain with GCSE results coming out today and the A-level results a week ago. Hello, I'm Anoush Shekelian, Britain editor of The New Statesman and host of this podcast. And joining me in the studio, I have our associate political editor, Rachel Cunliffe, and political correspondent, Freddie Haywood. Pupils got their GCSE results this morning and last week it was A-levels. In both cases, the proportion of top grades fell following the great inflation of the pandemic years, with the biggest drops in England as the exam regulators in Wales and Northern Ireland are returning to pre-pandemic grading levels slightly slower. So what do you make of this year's results so far, Rachel? I know that the GCSEs have just dropped (laughs) at the time of recording. It's kind of what everyone expected, which is that grades have fallen. And it's not just what was expected, it was what the government kind of wanted to happen because there's been this panic over grade inflation since COVID, the mutant algorithm, the what do you do when kids don't take exams, you know, kids today are getting by too easy or or whatever. So they, they, they were trying to get back to 2019 levels, which is what we've seen today, which on a kind of macro scale is what the government wanted. Now we're back in line with our metrics. We can all measure things, you know, the way that we want to. But for the kids involved in it, it just feels really really unfair. And the the discrepancies from COVID and from all the disruption, sort of teacher strikes, um, mm. the uh, constant churn in the government like, over the last couple of years, they're going to get a piece of paper that says you didn't pass your maths or English, which is going to affect them in, in later life. And the government's like, everything's fine because... Because we got back to 2019 levels. But is it not important to get back to those levels in terms of like trust in the national standards that we set ourselves? I remember for a podcast episode that's not yet come out, Armando Iannucci and I for our other series went to go and visit some students who had just finished their A-levels in Harlow in a school in quite a deprived area. And they were actually telling us, I remember, that you know they didn't want it to appear as if 
things were any easier for them than it had been for sort of previous cohorts. They didn't like the idea that future employers or universities might think that they were given an easy ride. So I do think there's sort of two sides to this. While I absolutely take the point that there will be many people disappointed who have had a really rough time anyway, spent most of their school years in the pandemic. Some of the A-level students wouldn't have sat exams properly before. And so it is, you know, it's very tough on, on this cohort. Yeah, I think you also always need the proportions of grades to reflect the fact that you're going to have to uh, measure people of different abilities. You can't have everyone getting high grades because it basically means it's no longer a high grade. It uh, makes the whole system redundant. I don't think that's so much the issue. As you say, they do have to return back to some sense of proportionality. It's more the fact that, as you were saying, Rachel, everyone within the system over the past three or uh, four years has had a horrible time uh, with COVID, with all the debacles that we've had uh, every single summer, it seems, with the government uh, scrambling, whether it's Gavin Williamson or others, scrambling to uh, put in place COVID measures for exams. And then on top of that, we've had the strikes. Then lots of these kids are going to go to university and then they're also going to have strikes and disrupted teaching there. So yeah, it might have returned to what it needs to be, uh, but that doesn't mean that they've had a, a good time or a fair time. Yeah, and and actually what's interesting is when these results have been coming out, I noticed that on the day of the A-level results, it was we were actually officially, and we'll talk about this in tomorrow's episode, uh, in the government's grid, we were in health week. And it made me yeah. think, actually, the government is so different on education now. It's not at the forefront of, of its rhetoric or its priorities compared to, I remember when I first was covering politics back in 2012, I think it was, you know, you had Michael Gove's reforming agenda and actually sort of academic standards were the lodestar of that coalition government going into the next Conservative government. It feels really different now. Yeah, they've, they've stopped talking about it, which I think is interesting because on some metrics... Education is one of the areas where the Tories can point to some successes. Earlier this year, Britain moved up to, I think, fourth place in uh, children's literacy, uh, which the government could totally say is partly a result of Michael Gove's reforms, um, whether, whether or not specialists in education believe that. But like that's a, that, that's a thing that they could point to as a success. And they barely mentioned it. Um, and they don't seem to want to draw attention to that potentially positive legacy. I think education is also one of the departments that has seen the most churn. So we had five education secretaries last year in 2022. If you cover the... That's a crazy stat in itself. One one of them was Michelle Donnellan, who was education secretary for, I think, 36 hours. But her picture is on the wall. They've They've got like all the portraits up of education secretaries and hers is there. And if you count like the COVID years, Gavin Williamson, that's six. That's six education secretaries during a period of immense disruption where you would really, really hope that someone had sat down at the beginning and gone, okay, we're closing schools for COVID. We're going to have to do something about exams. There's going to be lost learning. There are going to be real discrepancies in the kids who have support and technology and parents who can help them at home and the kids who don't. How are we going to make that up? What are we going to do with the mental health challenges? Like, this is a real issue for an entire generation of children. Who are we going to have sort of shepherding them through this? And the, the answer is a string of 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 ministers who barely had time to you know work out where their desk was before they were moved on and I think 
that, that shows priorities, right? Definitely. Doesn't it? Yeah, it says something in itself. I mean, I remember trying to FOI the cost of um, framing that picture of Michelle Donnellan, who is <laughs> who is education secretary. They told me they already had the frames in stock in they store at the, now. At the department. Yeah. So unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't get my piece. headline. I didn't but, see that piece. Yeah, yeah. I didn't, well, I didn't write it because no. they, they they didn't spend any money on that in the end. But you know, yeah, um, it tells you something. It's interesting <laughs> what you were saying about continuity within the department. Nick Gibb is obviously the schools minister. Has been there for a very long time, um, on and off since 2010, and he wrote. A piece I think last year for the higher education supplement which basically made this point Rachel that we've had quite radical changes within the education system Tory MPs the government don't talk about them and he basically says it's because he thinks MPs don't even know what they are they don't know for instance that uh, you know <laughs> they don't know that phonics is a massive part of what uh, the government introduced into uh, literacy. They don't know so much about changing or allowing most schools to become academies. I think uh, in 2021, around 80% of schools, secondary schools, were now academies. It's huge numbers. It's becoming uh, the norm. You don't hear Tory MPs talk about this at all, even though they could say, you know, when people ask, what have you done since 2010? And they sort of, they look quite quizzical and they say, oh, we, we delivered Brexit. Um and they sort of scramble around. They don't go, okay, well, we cut spending for most departments. That's not really what they point to. They could say, look, we have introduced um, education reforms. You can agree with them. You can disagree with them. But that is something we've done. Well, yeah. I mean, th- those education reforms transformed the way that education it's is huge. structured, right? It's, it was a huge change that they yeah. can point towards. And like you say, Rachel, there are some metrics which suggest that education has improved in this country. But I think what's interesting when you look at the results that we're seeing coming out this year is actually one of the aims of Michael Gove's reforms was to rebalance, you know, was to um, close those regional disparities in educational outcomes. And actually, you've seen in the northeast, in Yorkshire and the Humber, the proportion of top grades is actually lower than it was back in 2019, whereas in London and the southeast, it's higher. So those disparities have actually widened. And, you know, in this era of so-called levelling up, that runs against, you know, the social mobility that was, you know, has always been Michael Gove's uh, intention with those kind of reforms. And now he's levelling up secretary. It's his priority in government now as well. Yeah, and it's probably just worth reminding people what academies are. They're basically taking the schools out of local authorities, giving them more independence. And I think that does uh, bring about some problems. I mean, the whole idea is basically giving parents more choice. Uh, they can choose where they send their kids and therefore that will encourage schools just like a market uh, to increase their standards. It also means, however, that you have very confused lines of accountability rather than the council being responsible for schools. It's not always clear do you have like, the, the broader academy trust or the head teachers is quite um, unclear who's cho- who should be held accountable. You also got some problems with academies excluding kids um, who, are, who are problematic um, and then them having to go to local authority schools, which basically pulls down the averages within local authority schools and excuse the statistics. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of problems um, about measuring whether academies have been successful or not. I think some of the studies at the moment basically say that uh, there's not much difference, but because of some of the reasons I just spoke about, you can't actually make a a fair measure. Now, I think it's very difficult to measure the impact of academies and also free schools. There was news, uh, I think, last week that Eton Mm -hmm. has partnered with a whole load of new free schools to sort of bring the Eton ethos to to state schools. Yeah, that'll do it. Um, But even if you're not totally sold on this idea of a market in education, Michael Gove is, like the the Conservative Party is, so they could still be championing it and saying this is something that we've Mm. done and they're not. In terms of levelling up, I don't think it's actually that surprising because we've talked before about how during austerity uh, certain things were ring-fenced and obviously health was 
technically ring fenced and education was sort of partially ring fenced but everything else was cut which meant that Mm. um, a lot of challenges that would have been addressed by local authorities or um, social work or in the sort of community sector ended up having to be dealt with by teachers in in school. So if you've got areas where you've just had a whole load of local council funding cut for community centres or for supporting really low-income families or vulnerable children and they're turning up at school with the same issues but no one to help them, that puts extra pressure on the teachers in those schools who are then able to spend less time actually teaching. So I don't think it's surprising that those regional disparities come out in the education outcomes because like those challenges have to be dealt with somewhere and one of the reasons for the 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 teacher strike obviously a big one was pay but one of them was teachers just going we are so burnt out because we're having to deal with so many challenges that are not about education they're about failures in the community and we're having to pick up the pieces yeah and also education spending did fall it fell by nine percent in real terms per pupil in the decade after 2010 uh, and then you saw in the autumn statement, uh, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak announced that they want to inject about $2.3 billion, I think it was, into education. And that was basically Rishi Sunak saying, this is the thing that's very close to my political heart. All that will do by 2024, by next year, is basically return us to the level of 2010 funding. So you've, you've got over a decade there of underfunding and, and a missed opportunity. And as, as you say, Rachel, that is compounded by the fact that you've seen massive... Uh, cuts to local authorities and all those support mechanisms around schools. So yeah, I mean, and then and then pay as well. I mean, pay has gone down, yeah. especially for more senior teachers. That's gone down massively, and that's led to problems with meeting uh, recruitment targets. I think the on average for secondary school teachers, it's only around sixty percent. So that was the whole farce of Rishi Sunak standing up in January and saying, "Okay, well, we're going to teach maths to every uh, kid until they're 18. I think now we're going to teach chess as well. Yeah. And that's going to fix everything. Yeah, that's the that's the backtrack. Okay, we're going to put a chessboard in a park. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, he didn't have the teachers to do it. He didn't have the funding to do it. He didn't have the plan to do it. He didn't have the time to do it. There was no chance of him delivering that. Um, And hence, you've not heard anything about it since. Yeah, you've not heard anything about it since. This is the thing, these phantom announcements that don't actually come through you know how are you going to do that how are you going to recruit the maths teachers there's a shortage like you were saying in maths teachers as there are in so many other teachers there's also a rise in teachers teaching their non-expert subjects so you might get you know a PE teacher teaching RE and stuff I've Mm. visited schools where teachers have had all sorts of different responsibilities and like you say Rachel it's not just the curriculum that's that's putting pressure on them but it's also you know they have to act as mental health professionals social workers sometimes cleaners you know I once met a head teacher at a school in Sheffield who was sometimes having to clean the toilets herself so you know it's crazy and the the buildings are falling apart yeah and the building yeah exactly the capital investment has been so poor that the buildings are now in really bad state in some parts of the country so you know the 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 job of being a teacher is very different before and the experience of being a pupil in, in a school is very different because you don't have those support mechanisms around you like you were saying Rachel because so much of the kind of public realm which matters to education has been cut yeah, you know, you could you could point to these these reforms in education, and say narrowly we have transformed the way that education is delivered in this yeah. country. But when you've run down the context that that education is delivered in, then you do get these kind of disparities and results that aren't just down to the pandemic. I think another challenge is that when the Tories do talk about schools and young people, they seem very focused on culture war aspects of it. So our teachers teaching the curriculum right are are we 
wokeifying the curriculum, like rows over how you teach history, rows obviously over how teachers deal with issues of gender identity and, and debate and stuff in schools. And, and like that stuff is important on like an individual level. But wouldn't it be great if they were talking about how do we make up for the lost learning during COVID? How do we actually get pupils to the standard of maths they should be at at 16 before talking about whether they should be taking it to 18. I remember during the summer leadership contest, Rishi Sunak was talking about how we should have a British baccalaureate mm. and re like scrap A-levels completely and, and reform the education sec- um, system entirely around that. And you were like, that might be a really good idea. It works in other countries. Who knows? What we do know is like the education department asked him when he was chancellor for I think it was 10 billion of catch up funding mm. for for schools and he gave them like a fraction of that and that was money that could have been spent on helping kids who hadn't learned anything for 2 years and that's before you even get into all the children who've dropped out of the education system because of some of the the issues during the pandemic like those are the big structural things that a government needs to be grappling with if they really want to improve educational outcomes. And instead you've got like, are they teaching Churchill correctly on the curriculum? After the break, we'll talk about where Labour is on all of this. If you're subscribed to The New Statesman, you can get all our episodes ad-free on the New Statesman app. You can get it on both iOS and Android. Just search for New Statesman on the App Store or Google Play Store. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. If you enjoy the New Statesman podcast, then you'll love our daily politics newsletter, Morning Call. It's a quick, essential guide to the big political story each morning by me, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Wearmouth, featuring original reporting from Westminster and beyond, our analysis of the latest political news and some recommendations of the best reads of the day. Sign up for free at the link in the podcast description. 
at all in the perspective of government spending. It's also not a lot when we look at uh, some of the numbers you were talking about, Rachel, in terms of uh, returning schools to where they were before the pandemic. It's also not a lot in the context of how much money they've not received in the past 10 years. Um, And it's also not a lot when you look at teacher retention uh, and the the collapse in pay in the past 10 years. So again, we don't want to always bang on about money and labour's reluctance to engage in that issue. But I do think education is one policy area where that's key. I suppose they've got a story to tell in this kind of shattering the class ceiling thing. They they often champion the stories of West Streeting and Bridget Phillipson, but also, you know, Keir Starmer himself talks a lot about his own upbringing and Rachel Reeves about, you know, playing chess against the public school boys. Yeah. So I think they've they've got sort of, you know, they've got the makings of a coherent kind of narrative there. Definitely. It's just, as you say, the nuts and bolts of the policy are a little vague. But I suppose shifting the emphasis on the curriculum into giving kids in less privileged schools better confidence, whether it's through creative subjects or public speaking, is, you know, is the markings of a sort of new vision for education, even if they're not... New vision? Not, yeah, even if they've not fleshed it out that I don't know, much. is it a new vision? I mean, it's great. It's a good policy. It's really important, completely behind it. Is it an education policy that's going to revolutionise education, and perhaps in the same way that Michael Gove did in 2010, 2012? It's not of the same magnitude, I don't think. No, they're not They're not suggesting a restructure. No, and the other thing, work. given that academies are now at about 80% of secondary schools, the other question is, do they basically double down on academies and accept that now, basically, the system they've inherited is based on uh, academies and we're going to try and make that work better? Because one of the problems with trying to um, re- revert the academy policy is basically that lo- local authorities no longer have the capacity, funding, expertise to deliver schooling in the same way that they did 10, 15 years ago. And one of the reasons that you've got more parent choice now is a demographic one. So in 2010, when Michael Gove was was doing a lot of this and, and giving parents and teachers the power to set up new schools, there was a case for setting up lots of new schools because there were new pupils. The, 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 there were We needed more school places um, because people are having fewer children and that's like filtering through the school system. Now we don't have that particular challenge. And so there are areas where parents have loads of choice because the schools don't have enough kids, Mm -hmm. which is a really interesting challenge because, yeah, it gives, like, theoretically gives parents more choice. And theoretically as well, you could say if you've got fewer pupils and the same amount of spending, you've got more money per pupil. But that's not great for an education system to be like, oh, we don't have enough kids. Especially not a marketised one, which needs the demand. Yeah you know, theoretically to drive up standards. Okay, well, there's loads to talk about on education, so we will come back to it in a, in a future episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to submit a question for us to discuss on a future podcast, you can do so at newstatesman.com forward slash you ask us. If you're listening on Spotify, just scroll down on the episode page and type your reply. Or if you're watching on YouTube, just leave a question in the comments. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Kellyan, and my colleagues, Freddie Hayward and Rachel Cunliffe. We'll be back tomorrow to answer your questions in our next episode, You Ask Us. This episode was produced by Chris Stone. Listener.